Scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. morning. It's a blessing to be here this morning and thankful to have the opportunity to be together this Lord's Day. We are here in the beginning of March. It's a beautiful Lord's Day that we have been blessed with. I have been traveling. I'm a little tired. I'm still kind of recouping from the travels, but I am glad to be back home safely. I've been in Barbados preaching, and uh, tonight, if you are making plans to be with us, or if, even if you aren't and you want to come and hear about the trip, I'm going to be speaking about that trip uh, this evening, and so I invite you to come back and uh, be a part of our services this afternoon at 4 o'clock, where we will be uh, looking at that uh, trip and the results from that. And so I appreciate the good prayers that you have offered on my behalf and the, um, the interest that you have shown in that. This morning I want to talk to you about what happens if I sin after I become a Christian. I think that's something that is a very practical subject. It's something that we need to think, think about, we need to talk about, because many of us, After having become a Christian, we are zealous, we want to serve the Lord, we want to do everything that we can to be pleasing to God, but then we are tempted. We give in to temptation. We don't live up to the standard that God has established and set forth for us to follow. We don't follow in the footsteps of Christ as we ought to all the time. And maybe you're here this morning and you are presently struggling with a temptation that's in your life. Maybe it's a constant temptation. It's a constant sore spot that Satan is trying to use against you to get you to give up, to get you to quit serving God. And this morning I want to speak to you. I want to help you. I want God's Word to help you and to strengthen you. And so that way you can come back to the Lord, that you can find Him as a source of strength and encouragement, and that you can come back to the joy that you once had as a Christian. As soon as you became a Christian, you probably remember that zeal and that enthusiasm, the joy that you had. I want to help you restore that. And so I want you to think about 
the rule of what the Bible teaches us. By turning to John, the 8th chapter, we'll come back to 1 John as we study, but I want us to go to John, the 8th chapter. In John, chapter 8, we are given this occasion in the life of Christ when the Jews, they bring a woman who is supposedly caught in adultery. And we might be somewhat uh, skeptical about this whole scenario because we're told by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that This was all ordered to trap Jesus. It was a test for him. And so you might even be somewhat skeptical that all of this is whatever we are told that this woman was really even caught in adultery. We just cannot confirm that. And so while we may be skeptical about that and the parameters of what happens here, perhaps she is guilty, but we just don't know entirely. But the situation was used by Jesus in order to test the Jews that brought this woman to him. In John chapter 8 and in verse 3, it says, The scribes of the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? In verse 6, they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped and with his finger wrote on the ground. He just essentially ignores the whole situation here, which I find fascinating. If you know someone is trying to entrap you, perhaps the best thing is to ignore them for a moment and not even give them the attention that they're wanting. And I, I think we might have cause for some skepticism when we read this because if she was caught in the act, I have to wonder that Jesus might have been thinking, where's the guy? If this is really a genuine uh, scenario that happened. But nevertheless, he deals with this. He diffuses the situation. In verse 7 it says, But when they persisted in asking Him, He straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He turns the situation around on everyone. And that he says, whoever of you is without sin, you go ahead, cast the first stone. And no one dared to appear that self-righteous, did they? No one wanted to look as if they were going to be the first that could condemn because they were without sin. And so he diffuses the, the situation entirely and completely at this point. And he again stoops on the ground, uh, stoops down and writes on the ground in verse 8. And it says in verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And then notice what Jesus says. I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. I think this whole story sets up an important principle that we need to recognize as Christians. That after we come to Jesus, we are to sin no more. I heard one gospel preacher get a little cute, I thought, in a sermon. 
He said the Bible doesn't teach us to be sinless. It just teaches us to sin less. And I would direct that gospel preacher to this verse. That's not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus says, go and sin no more. That after becoming a Christian, the relationship between a Christian, a child of God, and sin is to be non-existent. The rule, the general principle that is supposed to govern each and every one of us that have come to Christ and has been washed in His blood, it's to go and sin no more. That may not be a popular thing to say or to preach, because we then start wanting to come up with the yeah buts, don't we? We want to say, well, yeah, but we still sin from time to time, don't we? And you know, preacher, we're not perfect. No one said that we would be. Then you might hear the excuse, well, we're only human. And our humanity is not an excuse because that's just putting the blame back on God, isn't it? Because He created us as humans. Jesus was a human and He did not sin. We are not sinless and we cannot be is what we are sometimes told. And I think that is one of the most egregious kinds of statements that we could make because of course we're not sinless. We have had to come before God. We have all sinned and fall short of His glory. We have all needed forgiveness. We've all needed atonement. We've all needed to be washed in the blood of Christ. We've all needed forgiveness from God in the first place. Of course, we're not sinless. Please understand what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with those statements per se, or in and of themselves. But instead of trying to have some quick built-in excuse, let's change our perspective and let's recognize the fact that God wants us to sin no more. In the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, or Colossians chapter 2 rather, in Colossians the second chapter, In Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 12, as he's talking about baptism, notice what he says. In Colossians 2 and verse 12, what the Apostle Paul writes here, "...having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead." He talks about baptism being a burial, that we put that old man of sin to death. We bury Him and He is supposed to remain buried. Period. End of sentence. It's supposed to be a new creature that is coming out of baptism that lives for Christ and serves Christ. The general rule, the general principle that we are supposed to recognize and follow is that we do not sin. Now, of course, we understand that sin is not completely eradicated from our life completely and entirely because the exception to the rule is not when we do well. 
the exception to the rule ought to be when we sin. Notice what the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, I want you to see how this connects to our first point in the first place. In verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You see, John is just simply helping us understand what Jesus wants, that we do not sin. But then he says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If anyone does sin, there is still hope. There's still forgiveness. There's still grace and there's still mercy. That if we do sin, there is an advocate that we have through Jesus Christ. There is still someone that can help you. That's what that word advocate means. It means someone who can help. Who can plead your case and defend you. That Jesus is still available. Forgiveness is still something that can be found. And while the rule may seem hard that we do not sin, while that rule may seem hard and difficult, maybe even impossible to us, do not believe that. Because God would not expect something of you that you could not do. God would not leave you without help even if you do sin. There is still forgiveness through Jesus and His blood. In 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9, the verse that we heard in our reading, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is still forgiveness that can be found. You know, when we stumble, when we fall, sometimes we can be our harshest critic. Can't we? We can be our toughest judge. And we feel as if we sin and we mess up, we make a mistake, and we do something egregious before God and in His sight. We have a hard time forgiving ourselves, don't we? We may be ready to just throw in the towel after failing. But you need to recognize your fate is not sealed. You do not have to stay in the sin. And I think that's many times what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to think that is our only option. It's to remain in the condition that we're in. He wants us to have a defeatist attitude where there is no way out. But what I want you to hear this morning is that there is light in the darkness. There is help to get out of the pit of sin. There's a hand that you can grasp and reach towards. And that's in Jesus. And you can still change. Even when setbacks happen, you don't have to allow one sin to multiply. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 30, there has always been a phrase that has stood out to me. In Isaiah chapter 30, when Isaiah the prophet is going through and he has been condemning Judah and Israel for their sins, 
And as he has been looking at various other nations that have sinned against God and how God is going to judge them for their wickedness and for their idolatry, for turning against the way of God. In Isaiah chapter 30 and in verse 1, Isaiah says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who executes a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. That phrase, to add sin to sin, has always resonated. Because I think that's oftentimes what we do. We make one mistake, we do we, we commit one sin and then we say, well, that's it. I can't, do any, I can't do what God says, so I'm going to continue down this path of sin. And we start adding sin to sin. In the middle school Bible class this morning, we were talking about 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 when David commits sin with Bathsheba. And we talked about how David committed sin and how he added sin to sin. And it wasn't just adultery, it was also murder and lying and covering it up and deceit. That this is not what God wants. But that's the path that Satan wants you to follow. He wants you down the path that is going to take you to commit more and more sin. And if He can get you to think that you don't have any, any help or any hope, and that you are stuck on that path of sin, then He wins. He wins. And that's why we begin to take exception to the rule that we talked about that we don't like hearing that you're not supposed to sin because Satan wants you to be deceived. He wants you to say that you can't follow that, yet God is expecting and demanding too much. That's not what the Scripture says. That's what Satan wants you to think. And we know that there are various sins that we might struggle with. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 in Hebrews chapter 10, the Hebrew writer, he speaks about willful sins. In Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is someone who knows the truth, isn't it? They have come to know the truth and they have been obedient to the truth, but they reject the truth at some point. They sin willfully, fully, knowing that what they are doing is wrong. And this is something that we need to treat seriously. We need to treat sin seriously. We do not need to feel good about sin. Notice what he continues to say in verse 27 that after there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That the result of sin in our life, especially if it's a willful sin, it's going to end in judgment. That ought to terrify us. In verse 29, 
He says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Here is someone who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They've been sanctified by the blood of Christ. But they continue to commit sin willfully, fully knowing the result of that sin and the harm that it's going to bring and cause in their life. Sadly, I know Christians that are like that. I know faithful Gospel preachers. I know elders in the Lord's church that have left the Lord. They have stood for the truth on so many issues that have defended what is right, yet they sin. Fully knowing the problems of that sin. Sometimes we commit willful sins, but then sometimes we try to hide our sins. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 19, in Psalm 19, the same psalm that Kyle referenced this morning as we had our call to worship. In Psalm 19, and this time notice in verse 12. In Psalm 19 and verse 12, David writes, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Some of your translations might say secret sins. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But then he goes on in verse 13, Also keep me, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. I think those are those willful sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. You have to just appreciate what David says. He says, I do not want sin to have rule and dominion over my life. Forgive me. And he talks about those secret sins, or I really do prefer the word hidden there. The New American Standard Bible says it's hidden faults. The Hebrew word there, it means to be hidden or concealed by one's self. And I don't think what David is is praying about or asking God to do is to, to forgive those sins that he doesn't have knowledge about. It's, to, it's for God to, hide, or to forgive the sins that David has hidden from others. I think that fits with the idea of that word and the context a whole lot better. Because you remember what, what Nathan told David. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after he had committed sin with Bathsheba and committed murder of Uriah? In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and in verse 12, Nathan told David that indeed you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. That there the idea of secret is that he had hidden it. It's not that David didn't know that he had sinned. It's that he had been hiding it from others. That we sometimes sin and we feel shame. We know that there's going to be there's going to be people who have a a critical eye 
looking at us and they're going to say, nope, you shouldn't have done that. We want to help you. We want to encourage you to come back, to repent, to put that stuff away. And so what we do is we begin to hide it. We don't want others to know about it. We don't want people to know that maybe we've committed adultery. We've been unfaithful to our spouse. Maybe we don't want people to know that we have a porn addiction. Maybe we don't want people to know that we are addicted to drugs or alcohol. Maybe we don't want people to know that we've stolen. We try to hide our sins. And what we need to recognize is that when we try to hide our sins, the longer that we keep it within ourselves, the worse it makes us. In Psalm 32, another Psalm of David, in Psalm 32 and in verse 3, when he's talking about his sins and the blessedness that comes through forgiveness, he says in verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. When he was silent about it, when he was quiet about it, when he tried to keep it hidden and within himself, it ate him out. It ate him up from the inside. He couldn't stand it. He was losing that zeal and that enthusiasm, the desire he had for the Lord. But then, where did healing come through? It came through acknowledging and confessing sin. You see, that's another trap that Satan wants you to fall for. He wants you to believe that if you hide it, if you keep secret about your sin then you're better off. Because then you don't have to face the judgment and the scorn and the, the humility that you might have to go through. And then sometimes we sin unintentionally, don't we? In the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 15, we don't have time to look at all these verses, but in Numbers chapter 15 and in verse 22, in the law of Moses... You have here the laws that would pertain to sacrifices for unwittingly committing a sin. Unintentional sins. Sins that might not have been planned. Sins that just sort of happened in the moment very quickly. Maybe it's whenever you lose a little control of your anger and your temper. You allow anger to be come very well known, where it's an outburst of wrath, or maybe it's whenever you allow your speech to get out of control. Unintentional sins, sins that were not planned, but sins that are committed nevertheless. And you see in Numbers chapter 15 and verses 22 through 29, that even when you commit an unintentional sin, even if you didn't mean to commit the sin, and it wasn't planned or thought about in in uh, great detail. Guess what? There was still a sacrifice that had to be made. That you still committed sin. There was still guilt. And you still needed forgiveness. 
that no matter what the sin is, there is forgiveness that is needed, whether it is a willful sin or a sin that you've tried to hide or an unintentional sin because sin, period, the wages of sin is death. There's no qualifying statement about that, that some sins lead to death, but some sins don't. And the wages of sin is death. Presumptuous sins, intentional sins need to be treated with extreme caution because if we continue down the path of sin, then any sin can become a willful sin, a presumptuous sin, a sin where we refuse to turn to God and seek His forgiveness. A repeated habitual sin can become such a part of our lives that they become willful sin. But the way of sin leads to death. And so this morning, if you are on that path of sin somewhere, what I want to help you with this morning is showing you the path to forgiveness. In 1 John chapter 1, in 1 John chapter 1, and in verse 9, notice what the Apostle says. He says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we noted in Psalm 32, and what David said that whenever he kept silent about his sin, things got worse for him. What we need to do is bring our sins out into the open. We need to confess our sins before God. We need to tell Him that we sin. He knows we sin, but He also wants us, I think, in the process of healing and overcoming, He wants us and He needs us to acknowledge our sin so that we can grow past it. So that we can recognize that we need Him and His help and His grace. Then we need to confess our sins to fellow Christians. That seems difficult, doesn't it? Because aren't we always afraid that someone's going to be critical and judgmental and treat us with a holier-than-thou kind of attitude? But what does the Scripture say? In James chapter 5 and verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another. And then, thirdly, we need to ask for prayers because he says, and pray for one another. That when we have a fault, we need to confess that fault to someone else. Uh, not only to God, but we need to confess it to another Christian. Another Christian who can pray with me and continue to help me and to be a source of strength for me in moments when I am weak. Because if I am open about my struggle, if I can tell someone about my struggle, then whenever I am facing a temptation and a moment of weakness, then I can reach out to that person. And I can ask for them to pray for me. And 
And while we need the prayers of our brethren, we also need to pray to God. And we need to repent of our sin. In the book of Acts, in Acts the 8th chapter, in Acts chapter 8, after the gospel had been preached in Samaria, and many had come to believe and were baptized into Christ, one being a man named Simon, and he was a magician, a sorcerer. And he was amazed at the miracles that were being performed by Peter and John. And he wanted to purchase that same power. And Peter has a scathing rebuke for Simon. In verse 20, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And Peter tells Simon that you are not right with God. And you need to repent and you need to pray. You need to pray to God. You need to seek His forgiveness. I think Psalm 32 is a beautiful psalm whenever you're struggling. And Psalm 51 is another psalm that you need to read. When you are wanting to pray to God for forgiveness, read those psalms. Because there David confesses his sin before God. He acknowledges his sin and he owns up to it. And he recognizes that he has violated God's command and God's will. And he's pleading that God would forgive and restore. But also you see repentance in such a beautiful way because David acknowledges where he has had a misstep, where he has sinned. And then he asks for God to forgive and restore, as we mentioned. But then what he does, he says, I'm going to be transformed. In Psalm 51 in particular, he says, after he talks uh, to God about being washed and to be cleansed, he then makes mention of how he is going to sing praises to God and how he's going to tell others about the riches of God's mercy and forgiveness. That's repentance right there. In a very demonstrable kind of way. Repentance, it just means to have an about face. That instead of looking back here, I'm going to turn and look this way. I'm going to go this way now. That I'm going to turn direction in my life. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to turn my life around. And I'm going to start serving God. And as a result, I'm going to stop walking in darkness. Turning back to 1 John, in 1 John chapter 1. I want you to see very carefully with me here, in 1 John chapter 1, what the Apostle says. 
In 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 6, John says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I want you to notice what he says here. He's not just saying that this guy is some terrible sinner that is just walking in darkness. Yes, he is walking in darkness, but I want you to first see what he's doing. He's walking in darkness, but what is he saying? He says that we have fellowship with Him. This is a guy who's going around and he's saying, I am perfectly good with God. That I have fellowship with God, but he walks in darkness. He can't even see his own sin, can he? He can't see how his sin has separated him from God. That's why he says in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And here's this guy, he thinks he's perfectly good with God, and so he's saying, nope, I didn't do that, I didn't, that's not wrong, that's not sin. In verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this guy is completely self-deceived, he has fooled even himself. That's what the darkness has a way of doing, that's what sin has a way of doing, it has a way of blinding us to our true spiritual condition. That's why this guy says, I have no sin. But what we need to do is get back to the light. We need to get back to the blood of Jesus. It says in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. That we can come back to the light and when we repent, then His blood cleanses us. In verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confessing your sin, that's walking in the light. We know that we sometimes sin. But when we do sin, part of walking with God and walking in the light is confessing it. It's the person who refuses to acknowledge and who refuses to repent and confess. That's the person who is lost. In chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Get back to the light and walk in the footsteps of Christ. If you sin after becoming a Christian, and if you struggle with some temptation, get to the path of forgiveness. Get on that path. If it's an addiction, a betrayal, unfaithfulness, or a struggle, we're here for you. We want to help you. We want to help you get out of that sin and that addiction or that struggle. And remain on the path of forgiveness and towards forgiveness. 
That's where there's hope and forgiveness, there's love, there's grace and mercy. Remaining on the path of sin will lead to death. There is hope, there's transformation, and there is grace. All of that is found in Jesus. This morning, if you need to become a Christian, we want to help you make that step. Turning away from sin, coming in faith, believing that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you, be baptized in water to have your sins washed away. We want to help you do that. But if you are here this morning and you have already done that, and yet you've turned back to this world into sin, being brought under the power of Satan, we want to help you come back to the Lord. You can reach out, confessing your sins, praying that God might forgive you. You can come and confess your sins to us, not for shaming or public humiliation, but for help. To have a community that loves you and that wants to encourage you and strengthen you. This morning, if you need to respond to the gospel invitation, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.